What a great selection of songs and praise the day. And Stephen, what a great job you did around the Lord's Supper table. It's going to fit in perfectly what we're talking about today. So thankful that all of you are here today. I invite you this morning to turn to the greatest sermon ever preached, what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. You're going to want your Bibles open this morning, Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus dealt with these same three chairs we've been talking about this week. He may not have known he was dealing with these, but uh, we'll see today he did. Now, we're talking about our response to Jesus over these weeks and, and how we respond can be, first of all, in a way that we hear the message of Jesus and we just say, that's not for me, let me forget that and let me move on. And then here's the chair Jesus is going to deal with today is that middle chair, that second chair, where I just have a, a superficial outside change in my life. And where Jesus is trying to get us today in this incredible sermon is to this third chair, which is absolutely the surrendered heart. When I finally say, Lord, I give up on me. It's got to be you. I can't do it. I can't figure it out. It's all going to have to be you. And that's actually the way this message starts. We understand the, the Sermon on the Mount starts what we call the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are more than just beautiful sayings that belong on a plaque. They are the pathway of a righteous life. Let's just sort of outline them rather quickly. They start with blessed are the poor in spirit. Who's the person poor in spirit? It's the person who's spiritually bankrupt and knows they are. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. They not only know they're spiritually bankrupt, they feel bad. They know their life is broken on their own. And then they become blessed are those who are meek. Now, the word meek in the Bible is a great word. It does not mean weak, all right? We'd be offended if we went out on a date, and at the end of the date, the girl said to us, I've really enjoyed it. You are the meekest guy I've ever known. We wouldn't take that as a compliment. But in the Bible, it means you're broken and you're moldable. So how does this spiritual journey begin? It, it begins in brokenness. And, and then the next beatitude is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Then I want God more than anything else. Out of my emptiness, I'm hungry for God. And then God begins to rebuild me. I become merciful. I become pure in heart. I become a peacemaker. And then the most amazing thing happens when I become like Jesus, I begin to be treated like Jesus. I am actually persecuted. And so in that journey through those beatitudes, we see that person who's come to that point of absolute surrender, who says, Lord, I am so broken and so messed up. The only one who could solve this is you. And God moves in and God begins to mold that person. So the beginning of this walk to the surrendered chair is when you finally decide that the only the grace of God and love of God could save you. You could never save yourself. Now, when Jesus begins to preach this, and all of Jesus preaching, then there's this question that comes up. Well, Jesus, do you not care about the law? Do you not care about obedience? If, if I can't save myself by my own actions, and it's all about what you have done for me, well, Jesus, are you anti the law of God, and that's where Jesus gets in verse 17. Look at verse 17 up here, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. After he says it all begins with a surrendered heart, and they begin to say, well, okay, tell us what we do then with God's rules. He says this, 
Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Go to the next verse. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Go to the next one. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, I am not coming to tell you the law of God doesn't count. That obedience is not important. In fact, look at the next verse. This is the verse that blew their minds. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're in that audience that day, you do not appreciate that statement. You don't applaud because when Jesus says the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you're thinking the most spiritually rigid people on the earth. These are people who do their best to boil down the rules of God. Listen to this to 248 commands and 365 prohibitions. That's as small as they can make it. And Jesus says that you've got to be more righteous than them. The response of them and the response of us today would be, oh no, my goodness, I'm toast. There is no way that I could live up to that standard. So what are you saying, Jesus? Here's what Jesus is saying. He said, when you start with a surrendered heart, it leads to a deeper obedience. It leads to a deeper obedience. Jesus is not saying here in this message, I want more obedience. That's what the uh, Pharisees would say. Jesus is saying, I want a deeper obedience. I don't want it just to be superficial, surface, just trying to to do the right thing to get yourself out of trouble, I want it to be deeper than that. Now, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at how Jesus takes this deeper. And in here are the statements Jesus makes in the rest of Matthew chapter 5. He, he, he makes these two statements, these two contrasts. You've heard it said, and on the other hand, he says, but I say to you, Now, when he says, you've heard it said, if you're not careful, you go, well, Jesus is saying, I'm not buying into the old law. That's not what he's saying. When he says, you've heard it said, what he's talking about is their interpretation of the old law. Here's how the Pharisees have made it a superficial obedience. You've heard it said this, but I want to stand in the midst of these ancient codes and laws, and I want to say to you, this is what God really means. This is the truth. So today, we're going to look at six challenges to go deeper that Jesus gives. Six challenges. Number one was about murder. Uh, Listen to what he says in verse 21. You've heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder, and if you murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say to you, or if you... You are even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought to the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. 
You know, often we say things like this. Uh, well, at least I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I know you're getting on my case, but I didn't murder anybody. Jesus says, friend, it's not enough just not to kill somebody. Were you angry with somebody? Are, are, are the seeds of murder there in your heart? You see, guys, murder doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of a, of a heart that is full of anger. And guys, what happens in our life is when we just keep on stuffing these angry feelings, eventually, in some way, they explode. And so Jesus says, guys, I want to go deeper with this thing. It's not okay just to say this morning, I'm not a murderer. Do you, is your life full of anger that causes you to treat people in a way that's unkind? And do you use words like stupid and idiot? that demean people? Jesus says you're guilty of murder. Why? Because when you begin to call someone stupid or an idiot or a fool, what you're, then you begin to be able to laugh at people and make fun of them and use those kind of words. Here's what you do. is In the long run, you don't treat them like a person. In the long run, they become an it, not a being. And it becomes easy. Sometimes we do that with groups of people. That's what we call prejudice. When we say, all of these people, they're just a bunch of idiots. They're just crazy. And Jesus says, when you start doing that, my friend, you are bordering on murder. Don't do that. So number one, he says, I want a, a deeper obedience when it comes to murder. Number two, I want a deeper obedience when it comes to adultery. I mean, guys, listen to me. In this message today, if you don't get challenged today in this lesson, then either you don't have a pulse or you're just not listening. Because I'm telling you, Jesus is all over us on this one. I mean, listen to what he says, verse 27. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say to anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, don't think I'm okay. You know, I've not, I've not cheated on my wife, but I'm telling you what, man. Uh, pornography's rampant in my office. I've not cheated on my wife, but I sure do stare down the women that come around me. Jesus says, guys, come on, let's stop just being technical, superficial about this thing. There's a problem what is lust? Lust is not attraction. There's nothing sinful about being attracted to someone. That's the way God wired you. Don't, don't mistake that. Lust is when he goes beyond just attraction. Never forget an old guy came to church here years ago, and I was teaching the Sermon on the Mountain in the Sunday school class, and I asked for a def- definition of lust. And I got these nice little church definitions until he raised his hands, and he said, buddy, lust is when you begin to focus in on her blank and her blank. It was the best definition of lust I'd ever heard in my life. It was accurate because it's when you begin to play act something through in your mind. Well, what, what's the problem with lust? What makes it so terrible is that when, when someone is caught in lust, what it is is it makes someone just an object for your own gratification. Did you hear me? Because the problem with lust is it's completely selfish. It turns a woman or a man from being a person into someone who's just there to gratify your pleasures. 
And Jesus says, your obedience needs to be deeper than saying, I had never played around on my wife or my husband, to saying, I'm keeping my thoughts pure. Now, let's be honest. For some of us who are older in this audience, pornography used to be something you had to work at. You had to search for it. You had to go purchase it. The problem with the generation today is it's only one click away. And yet Jesus says, if you're going to be mine and you're going to be changed from the inside out, I want your heart to be cleansed that way. And then in verse 31, he talks about his standards on divorce. You've heard, the law from, you've heard that the law says a man may divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. They had made divorce such a trite thing in that day. Is all, all you got to have it, and it was really very unfair because only the man could divorce the wife. And all he needed was just a nice little certificate. If he could just find a nice certificate, then it didn't matter what had happened. If she just burnt the toast or got on his nerves, and then he had every right in their eyes, many of the scholars' eyes, to just divorce. And he had sinned her way. And Jesus says, no, no, no. When you divorce, it's not just giving a piece of paper. Jesus goes on to say, it's adultery. It's breaking of a divine covenant. You can't just do this for any old reason. I want your obedience to be deeper. And then the fourth thing is is honesty. Uh, The Pharisees had all these these vows, you know. And it was an elaborate system of, of when you had to tell the truth and when you didn't. If you swore by the temple, it counted. If you swore by the steps of the temple, it didn't count. And so you, you, you learned all these ways to sort of fudge the truth. Now, we can do the same thing, can't we? If you're young, you know you never had the truth, had to tell the truth if you did one thing what? Cross your fingers. Now, when does that end? 18? I'm not sure. But you, know, you just cross your fingers, you know, and you, you get by with it. And so we learn, friends, much like the Pharisees, to come up with all kinds of justifications for not telling the truth. It's going to hurt somebody's feelings. It's going to make me look bad. If I've been caught and I'm in a corner and I want to get out, I just sort of fudge the truth a little bit. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Don't just be superficially honest with all this. Could your yes simply be yes and your no just be no? What Jesus is saying is, in your life there ought to be such a level of integrity and honesty that you don't need to add more words behind your statement. You don't have to say, you know what, I really promise you I'm going to meet you there. Uh, Give me a stack of Bibles. Give me a stack of Bibles. I'll make an oath about this. He said, no, all of that should be useless to someone who's following God. Because if you say yes, it's going to happen. If you say no, it's not going to happen. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Have a level of honesty. Time Magazine had a cover not too long ago. Lying, everybody's doing it. And Jesus says, everybody better not be doing it. If you really understand my grace and you're motivated by it, it's going to lead you to a level of honesty you're not going to get in this world. And we know today how easy it is to fudge the truth, how easy it is to exaggerate. How easy it is to get myself out of a bad place by just not saying what really happened. And then he talks, number five, about revenge. He said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that is a biblical quotation. What's the problem here? 
The problem is, you know, you know why God originally gave that law? It was to limit revenge. We would say it this way in America today, the crime needs to fit what? Or the, the punishment needs to fit the crime. In other words, what it was saying is, if, if I slam your finger in my door, you don't have a right to slam my head in your door. <laughs> well, it, it was not meant to be a permission to get someone back. It was meant in the original law was to make sure that punishment was limited to what made sense. But the Pharisees had taken it to mean that you could get somebody back. And Jesus says, that's not the heart of God. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 5 on this subject of revenge. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give him your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry two miles. What's Jesus saying? Let's stop this cycle of revenge. We have so many illustrations of this, don't we? All you got to do is watch the news or read the newspaper about the Middle East. How many centuries have the Palestinians and the Israelis been caught in this cycle of revenge? You bomb me, we bomb you back bigger. You kill two of our people, we'll kill ten of your people. I mean, it's just on and on and on. We don't even have to go over there. All you've got to do, literally, is go to summer camp and be in a boy's cabin with another boy's cabin does a prank on that cabin. What do you do back? You do a prank back, but what do you do? You make it a little bit worse, you know? If they just shave and cream your, your, your cabin, then, then you go in there, you know, and, and you put some mice in their sleeping bag. I mean, you, you just always up it, and you, get in, and you know what happens by the end of the, the, the week. It's nuclear warfare. Because it's just, it's just, guys, it's so natural for us. The natural man just seeks revenge. Someone does me wrong, I do them wrong back. And Jesus says, you got to be deeper than that. I want you to be at a place where when someone does you wrong, you turn the other cheek. Someone wants to sue you for your shirt, you take your coat off and say, take this as well. He says, here's what we're going to do, is we're going to stop this cycle of revenge. And that brings us to the last challenge, which is about love. Jesus said, you've heard the law says you love your enemies and hate your enemy. Unless you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, let me say this first of all. The law never said that. The law did say love your neighbor. But they had added hate your enemies. Why? Because their interpretation was, I love people like me. I love the people who do live only in my neighborhood. I love people that look like me. I love people who think like me. I love people with my skin color. I love people that love me. And listen, Jesus says, when you love that way, if you just love people that love you, you're no better than the pagans. That's exactly what they do. Anybody can love somebody who loves them back or loves them first. And Jesus says, I want you to do something so crazy and so radical. I want you to love your enemies. 
Now look at those six challenges. Wow. Which one hits you this morning? Which one hits me? In fact, when we look at Jesus' standards here, we walk away and think, that sounds impossible. How could that happen? Even if I do get the right interpretation, I couldn't live those six things out. In fact, the right interpretation seems to make it tougher than the surface interpretation that says, you know, don't, don't go kill somebody. And Jesus says, uh-uh, don't even hate them. Uh, don't go commit adultery. No, no, don't even lust. How is this possible? What makes Jesus' teaching here different? Let me tell you that as we close out this morning. It is possible because not only does Jesus want a deeper obedience, Jesus wants a deeper motivation. A deeper motivation. What makes what Jesus says here different is the same thing Stephen said earlier. It's the difference in got to and get to. It's the difference in motivation. Why can we love this way? Why can we give this way? Because God has loved us in this way. You see, that's the cool thing about this third chair is when I sit here, I don't sit here because I deserve it. I don't sit here because I've worked for it. I don't sit here because I was able to keep all the commandments. I sit here simply by the grace of God. God loved me when I was unlovable. God loved me and came after me when I was literally his enemy. And now I love back. And so Jesus is saying this is possible because of a deeper motivation. If you get to Matthew chapter 6, he starts talking about motivation. He says, don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees who love to practice their righteousness in front of people. They're chair number two religion. It's superficial. When they give, he says, they blow the trumpet. They want their names put on the building because they gave so much money. They want recognition. When they pray, they stand on the street corners and pray with deep voices and lots of these and thous. When they fast, they walk around somber. So someone says, what's wrong? And they can go, oh, I'm fasting today. I'm so spiritual. Wish you were this spiritual. Jesus says they practice their righteousness to be seen by men. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Practice your righteousness where nobody knows but your heavenly father and your heavenly father who sees what is done in secret, he says, will reward you. My friends, what is this deeper motivation? This deeper motivation is that I have fallen so in love with God that you know what? Even if other people do not recognize what I do, I'm okay because I am living for an audience of one and that is God. It's a deeper motivation. And my friends, it makes all the difference in the world in our obedience. You see, Jesus stands in the midst of these ancient rules and says, let me tell you, I say unto you, my friends, the difference in this obedience is Jesus. It's not just a book of cold rules and regulations. It's response to a Savior who has loved us and sacrificed for us. And because of that, I'm willing to do the same for him. We understand this. You might have the exact same job and work for two different bosses. 
You might have the exact same job with the exact same expectations. And one can be miserable and one can be quite a joy. Maybe you work for someone who is uh, overbearing. Or you work for someone who you don't respect. They tell you one thing and they do another. Or they're hypercritical of everything you do. And work in that place is, is rather miserable, but you know the rules. You know you can't leave before 5 o'clock. You know that the break is only 10 minutes. And you know you only have 30 minutes for lunch. And so superficially, you keep those commands. You stay to 5 o'clock and, boy, you're out of there. You time your breakout. And you're miserable. But you're seeking to keep the commands. But then this boss quits, and a new boss comes in. And you know this boss really cares about you, cares about your family. This boss recognizes the good things you do. This boss blesses you. This boss, you might not use these words, but he actually loves you. And you got the same rules and regulations. But your attitude's different. You obey not because you got to and you might get fired if you don't, but because you actually just want to please him. And so 5 o'clock can pass and you're still working. And you have no problem getting back from lunch because you're trying to please this person. That's the difference here. That's the difference in trying to live like the Pharisees who had all these superficial laws who nobody thought they could keep up with to living like Jesus says in this third chair with this surrendered heart, with a love relationship with God that says, you know what, God, don't just tell me the minimum I've got to do. I I, want to love you. I want to please you. So there's a difference in motivation. And second, not only is there a different and deeper motivation, there's a deeper power There's a deeper power. How is this possible that you and I could live with this deeper obedience? It's because we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the Sermon on the Mount, in the last chapter, Matthew chapter 7, he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And then he says this cool little line. He says, You dads, you know how to give good gifts to your children. Jesus says something silly here. You wouldn't wake up. You wouldn't wrap a snake up and give it to him for Christmas in a couple months. No, you give him good gifts. He says, your heavenly father wants to give you the good gift. Luke tells us in Luke 11 verse 13 what the good gift is. God wants to give you the good gift, which is the Holy Spirit. How is it possible for us to keep these commands on a deeper level? We have a deeper motivation and we have a deeper power. This is what the prophet Ezekiel prophesied when they were talking about this new covenant coming. God says here, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. The power to fulfill the commands of God doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from your own self-determination. It comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we read all these things Jesus says about murder and adultery and divorce and revenge and anger and love and honesty, we go, oh, wow, Jesus, that sounds so hard. And Jesus says it wouldn't be near that hard 
if you knew how much I love you, and if you recognize that I, I have empowered you through my Holy Spirit, that when you surrender, when you get out of the way, then I can move in. I love this, this story that Wes Coring shared with me this week about Adele Pollard. In 1902, this young lady was wanting to go to Africa to do mission work, and she was trying to raise money to go, and she wasn't being very successful. So one night she went to a prayer meeting, and she heard someone pray this prayer. Lord, it doesn't matter what you bring into our lives. You just have your way with us. And she was touched by that prayer. And she went home, and she read from Jeremiah the prophet, where Jeremiah had God saying, I am the potter and you are the clay. And she surrendered. And that night she wrote an extremely beautiful song that expresses what we're trying to teach today. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I'm the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded, surrendered, yielded, and still. You see, my friends, getting to this place starts with surrender. And then God will bring about the deeper change. I want to ask you right now to stand up. Before we sing in just a moment... I just, want you, I just want you to think about the words of that song that we've just mentioned. I want you to think about where you are. I want you to allow yourself in this moment to be challenged by these six challenges that Jesus makes that not a single one of us could walk out of here and go, man, I've got that down pat. But I want you to think about how God wants to change you. Before we sing this song together, I'd like you to close your eyes. Just close your eyes. If you feel comfortable, just put your hands out in a posture of receiving. Nobody's looking. Just put your hands out. And just think as we say these words together, if you know them. If you don't, just contemplate. Say them with me. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. If you need to come to Christ today, why don't you come while we sing together?